Today you'll have that opportunity, I promise you. No matter where you are in your life, what you've done, how distant you are, no matter if you are the poster child for prodigal, there is a place in God for you today for forgiveness and mercy and strength and help. Somebody amen this stuff. Come on. Huh? Amen. Let's get in the Word today. Matthew 5. For three weeks now, I've been in a series on divine favor. My contention is that in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has given us a blueprint, a roadmap into this place where the heavens are open above us and God's blessing comes out, just one after the other, eight times. Blessed, 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 blessed. And he tells us how to get into this place where God's favor pours out. Now listen, I believe that this word blessed is a hook into the heart of every person. The moment Jesus spoke it, he had all attention because, are you with me? Every one of us has a deep creational need to be blessed by God. Unless you are extremely hardened today and your heart is you know, turned away from the Lord or you've got rebellion in your water, most people, even rebellious people, deep down, want, don't want God mad at them. We want, we want Him to smile over our lives. We want our households to be blessed and our kids to turn out good. And we want the, the prosperity of the Scripture's teaching, not that we could have you know, gold wallpaper on our houses so that we can be a blessing to the good Samaritan, you know, as the good Samaritan was. Amen? Amen? Okay, well, let's get into this. Matthew 5, uh, verse 4. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is up on the mountainside with his followers. This is so important that we get on the mountain with Jesus. If you have a choice between being mentored by somebody or being on the mountain with Jesus, if it comes down to that, the only two ways you'll grow in the Lord, pick the mountain of the Lord. You won't have to pick those between those two because I don't believe you're, you're going to have the pick between those two. But I'm just telling you, the, being on the mountain with him is important. We need to get up there, sit at his feet, and receive what he says, no matter how countercultural it is. There's amen spots all throughout what I'm saying. I don't know if you guys are missing it today or what. Here we go. Okay, Bl- uh, bl- blessings. Here we go. Matthew 5, 4. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Very quickly went by your... I'm going to read it again. Just, just try to get into this now. Blessed, the favor, the rain cloud of good things in your life from heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Let's get into this. Heavenly Father, I pray for insight today from the Spirit of the living God to come upon the church so that the Word comes alive in us. This Word in particular runs against even what we would say is common sense or reality. And the world would give it a different slant altogether uh, to avoid pain and hurt. And there's the good times. But I pray, Lord, that what's in here would get in our hearts. Speak to us on this. For each one of us is trying to posture ourselves. That's why we showed up this morning. We're trying to posture ourselves, get a little more insight, understanding, come into a greater place of favor with you. And I pray that we would see how it is we can land in that spot, in these Beatitudes. We pray this in Jesus' name and the people of the Lord with fervor said. All right. I had four years of auto shop, four years of ag agriculture and three years of woodworking in high school and one year of algebra and and uh, uh, had some making up to do when I got to college. But I really uh, didn't listen much. I won't tell you the whole story when I was in biology. But I want to say something about biology. I have been told that biologists, one of the ways they rank living creatures on scales is according to their capacity for pain. Okay, so lower down on the scale of life, if we could say, are those creatures who have almost little capacity for pain. But high up would be other creatures with a great, you know, acute sense of pain. Uh, Let me illustrate, like an oyster or a worm, you know. I mean, way down, wouldn't you think, on this capacity for pain scale. So biologists rank them accordingly. I mean, I don't know how sensitive you are. Maybe we have some card-carrying PETA people in our midst who uh, 
but I would say even those folks would, you know, pull an oyster out of a shell live and really doesn't like rip their heart for the day. It's just, we just don't think about that. Or how about a fish, you know, maybe a little higher up on the scale. We got some fishermen here? I mean, is anybody just like tearing when the hook's in the mouth? It just, it just, what, why? Well, because it's lower on the capacity of pain scale. And a turtle might be a little higher up. I, I had turtles growing up as a kid, loved turtles. But even there, you know, one gets hit on the side of the road, you know, the sympathy, yeah, uh, for the sluggish reptile, I guess would be there, but it's not, you know, squirrel I feel a little worse about. Um, huh? You relating to this? And then you got the horse. Horse way up there on a scale in the category for capacity of pain. Some of you know about this. Uh, in a lot of literature, ancient stuff even, they call the horse the mourner of beasts. Because the horse not only has an acute sense of its own pain, but can sense even the feeling of the rider. How many of you know that's true? A lot of you do. It's the horse is an amazing being. But here we are. Human beings are categorically at another scale altogether from the rest of creation when it comes to our capacity to suffer, have pain, understand pain, respond to pain, both our own and other people's pain. Even from the earliest stages of the womb, babies feel pain. There was a conference call three weeks ago that I was a part of, had Sam Brownback, he's the senator from the state of Kansas, and Brownback has fought in the Senate on fetal pain issues. And he's, he's telling us in South Dakota, you need to bring this issue up because the science is there. It's true. Babies feel pain. And, and even when you do surgery on a 24-week-old baby today, they give it pain-killing medicine. But when we abort them, that's not the case. I watched a sonogram a few weeks ago of an abortion. And uh, I don't know if you've seen this footage. It's, uh, it's out there. But it, it's... Uh, there's an uh, instrument, I guess, uh, has a suction uh, ability, I'm told. But anyway, it's, it's visible, and the baby's visible. But as this instrument comes, this baby is moving away from this thing. Uh, and as it's being poked by this, it's, it's squirming and trying violently to get away from this. And the fetal heart rate monitor is evident as well on this video. And it's going crazy during this time. Well, there's nowhere for it to go. And eventually... This thing coming in pulls this baby apart piece by piece until its movement stops. And I know that's gross and all that, but I, I'm telling you, what we have today are a, is a total silence on the, the unborn and what's really going on there. And it's been sanitized in the same way that there was a silence on the suffering and a sanitization of the suffering of slaves 150 years ago in our country. And maybe 150 years ago, you know, half the nation was waking up to the grievous realities of slavery. Um, but the case is the same today. Uh, we're, we're not talking about this. During the height of his battle against slavery, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln said this, I feel sorry for the man who can't feel the whip when it's put into the back of another man, when it's laid across another man's back. In other words... I mean, you've reached a level of depravity to be pitied when you've lost your ability to, I mean, you're even lower than the horse. The horse can feel the, 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 the situation with the one who's riding it in terms of how they're feeling. Well, the mentality in our society today is um, the less pain and the less sorrow we have, uh, the better off we are. And I don't know where you are on this. Maybe you are not numb or callous to the pain of the world. Uh, I hope not. But I wrestle with this. It's good for me to come back to this again. You know, we have 11 nations of the world whose coastlines have been devastated by a tsunami. And, and, and we, we, you know, we get about two days and we're like, come on, Sports Channel. What's, I mean, I've heard that. We know about that. But we just, we're just off it. We just, we just leave it. And there's still... Rebuilding, And I'm not saying that we ought to sit in the, the horror of everything for 24-7 our entire lives, because that's not what the Lord is calling us to. But he is calling us to some level of identification with the suffering of the world, and that's certainly what's going on uh, in this beatitude, which I'm going to talk about. The Bible uh, talks about pain-serving redemptive purposes. And I know that our society has a different message altogether. We are addicted to keeping the good feelings flowing. 
and we will avoid the path that would lead to pain. True or false? Are you, are you with me on this? It's true. That's how people get into addictive behaviors. They just are in the zone of this and have to get more of it and do not want any of that. And the, the narrow road gets left behind. This is the case. And so, but the scriptures say pain has a redemptive purpose. There's many scriptures on this. But here now, here now, here now. Uh, in the economy of God, the scriptures are clear, no drip of pain is wasted. Amen? I mean, I don't know what you've been through, what hurts in you today, what's been done to you, where you've been, but I just want you to know that there's not any pain that has been unseen, unheard by God, or will be unused by God in the days ahead because he has a plan for what you're doing in your life and what you've been through, and he will bring a blessing out of this if you're in such a position that we see in this beatitude. One who is ready to mourn and just sit before the Lord the blessing comes on you. Blessed are those who mourn, it says, for they will be comforted. Now, I'm not saying, you know, Christians should avoid painkillers and all this. And you, you know, I, when, I, when I say that, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, don't watch this 24-7. What I'm, what I'm just trying to point out is our society values being pain-free um, is very important. Here's what's going on in the church. This is where I'm concerned today. We have a myth that suffering and sorrow aren't spiritual. Now I have four points today. This is number one. It is a myth that sorrow is not spiritual. I believe in this beatitude we have a blessing in disguise. A blessing in disguise. We have picked up in the church somewhere along the way a faulty notion that when we're filled with the Spirit, we'll have a perpetual grin on our face. Huh? And if you don't, you know, you're not maybe to the level of anointing or sanctification or whatever your flavor of theology and termage is on that. Uh, but, but we've got this notion that, you know, hey, the, the more spiritual are the happy and clappy in our midst. And that's the phrase I like to use. Uh, and, and, and here's the thing. Maybe you are all happy and clappy. And I would say, well, good for you. But I would suggest to you that there is something profound that's missing from your walk with Christ if you don't ever go into the depths of suffering and mourning and sorrow as we're talking about here. I would even suggest to you that there is a dimension of blessing that you have yet to experience if you are only happy and clappy. And so I'm, con- I'm concerned that our people are, are thinking clearly on this and something is wrong if, if it's not in there. Now here, here's what I'm thinking. The closer we grow to Christ, right? We're supposed to grow in Christ-likeness, go into his image. When, the, when we get closer to Christ, do we have less pain, suffering, sorrow, and mourning, and sadness? Okay? Well, one would think, yeah, you're right. You, you probably have more. One would think, well, I just, I'm 15 years with Jesus. I'm close to him. I'm glad I don't have hurt like I did in the days gone by. Well, the truth of the matter is you want to become more like Christ. You and Isaiah 53 says about Jesus, he was a man of what? sorrows and he was acquainted with grief we talked about this yesterday at our saturday morning prayer meeting and um yesterday was a weird day for me i don't know why woke up at 3 30 didn't appreciate that i don't know why you know and and i uh, tried to make the best use of it in the lord um but i sat there in bed and i told the prayer meeting about this we talked about this um you know i sat there thinking about some of this and just sitting in the teaching for the weekend and and I started to think, you know, uh, did Jesus, is there ever a record in the Gospels where Jesus laughed? And you, you could probably, I, don't, I, I haven't gone meticulously through it, but I sit there and I haven't found it in 24 hours. Uh, I'm not, I don't think there is. Now, don't take this wrong. I'm not saying you go out from here and say, Pastor Steve said, Jesus said, and doesn't laugh. We can't laugh. No, no, I believe Jesus did laugh. I believe he had joy in his heart, and he was delighted in children, and he was, he was attractive to be around, and people gravitated toward him. He wasn't one of these angry Christians that was all ogre and hard to be around and negative all day long. There was a positive, optimistic flow on him. I believe that. But what I'm saying is I notice in the Scripture uh, there is multiple reference to him weeping over a city, weeping at the loss of a, 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 a friend. When, when his family was sitting there crying, 
and, and, and uh, Jesus wept at, at his own plight about to go to the cross. We see him weeping there. And multiple occasions we see him. He comes along a crippled guy. He comes along different things. Uh, and uh, it says he's moved with compassion. Well, the word there, we just say compassion, but the word there is this really uh, rocked him, and there's tears in his eyes. That's the word that's used there. So my, my point is, um, I'm sure Jesus laughed, but how is it in Scripture that we don't have any record of him laughing and we have all of these other references to him engaging in the plight of the world? And I would just say to you, the closer you grow to him, the more you will begin to bear the weight that he bore in terms of the sin of your life and the world around you, the state we live in. What needs to be repented of will start to sit on you as it sat on him. You say, how come? Well, he was an intercessor. Jesus was an intercessor. An intercessor is one who goes between God and man. He is our intercessor. And we're called to follow him, go the same direction that he went, do the same things that he did. That means that we are to go into the places between God and broken humankind and bring intercession. Bear the weight of it. Repent. Bring the graces of the Lord through that time. So the more close you grow to Jesus, the more this will sit on you. And it says in Hebrews chapter 13 that we are to go to him. Outside the camp and bear the reproach. Everybody say reproach. Bear the reproach that he bore. And a lot of Christians don't want to bear the reproach. They don't want to bear the reproach of their own sin. They don't want to, repair the, they don't want to bear the reproach of a sin like abortion. They don't want to bear the, uh, the reproach of anybody else's deeds, what's going on with Native Americans, whatever. We just don't want it. But I would suggest to you that Christ calls us into that place. Now, we get into these Beatitudes. I've shown for a couple of weeks how each of these Beatitudes is the polar opposite of what the world is teaching. The world says A, Jesus says B. In terms of what it takes to bring blessing and happiness and success in your life in terms of spiritual and God's purpose for you. The contrast between what the world says and what Jesus says is never as stark as it is in verse 4. Of all the Beatitudes, I'd say verse 4 is, is incredible. As a matter of fact, a guy named William Barclay, who's a commentator, a number of you read his books or have them on your shelf, uh, he says this, of all the paradoxes of the Beatitudes, surely this is the most violent. Whoa, what's he talking about there? Well, think about it. Look at this thing. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. That's crazy. Happy are the unhappy. You know? Is he a masochist talking about the gladness of grief? That's what he's talking about here. It's, it's really a stark contrast from the world. Well, I want to point out some dynamics of what this means. And particularly at the beginning, I need to just say, initially, um, Jesus is not referring primarily here to crying over a dead person in your life. Uh, when we hear the word mourn, we immediately jump to the funeral situation where we've lost a loved one. And I want to tell you that this can be applied to that. You can pull this verse out of its context and stick it on a funeral program, and it's true. God gravitates towards grieving people. He gravitates toward hurting people. There is an application that's literal to this verse in that way. But in the context of what the, where this verse sits in this passage, in, on the heels of poor in spirit, I just want to tell you this is not primarily about losing of a loved one any more than poor in spirit was about economic poverty. Uh, there was a, 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 a bankruptcy that one has to come at is the first step. We talked about it last week. Poor in spirit. There's where the blessing. I'm bankrupt before you, O oh God. And then we get into a spiritual uh, contrition, a grief, a regret, a remorse, a sorrow in the second beatitude. And there's a sequence here that's very, very important. And I want us to, to see this, where we, we, just, we just mourn what we just discovered in the first beatitude, that we're bankrupt before God. The second stage is mourning. So here, will give you some big words. This beatitude is not about the sorrow of bereavement. You understand? It's about the sorrow of repentance. This is very important. The first beatitude was about confession. God, before you, I'm bankrupt. This beatitude is about contrition. And this is a very important statement. Confession is one thing. Contrition is another. Do you understand the difference between these two? Not everybody does. The Catholics know the word contrition a lot better than the Protestants. They use it all the time. We've got a lot of people confessing, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bozo, I sure blew it, but we're not sorry. And there's no remorse and there's no regret. 
We see this on the news. We got some guy convicted of a horrible crime. Yep, guilty, but I'm not sorry. Guess who gets a punishment that's fierce? The jury hates that guy. But the guy who you know, blows it and then says, I, I'm, I'm horrible, um, there's a little lesser judgment that would come upon that. And, and what we have in the scriptures are, are confession and contrition as key. You have to keep these two together. Contrition, let me give you a definition. Or just some words, I guess. Penitent, repentant, remorseful, regret, sorrow, and sorry. That's what this is about, this beatitude. I'll give you the list again. Some of you like to write this down. Penitent, repentant, remorseful, regret, sorrow, and sorry. These are very important. So point two is this. Sorrow for sin is a spiritual step of which there's no way around if you want to go anywhere with God. Oh, I wish I could tell you. You don't have to go here. Just go around that. You don't have to get all crying and snot-nosed about it and repent and tell that. You just skip that. I wish I could tell you that. But sorrow for sin is a spiritual step of which there is no way around if you have any desire to go anywhere with God. I'll give you a verse, Psalm 38, verse 18. You'll see both contrition and confession. Confession first. But I confess my sins. Then something follows. I'm deeply sorry for what I've done. That's contrition. Those are very important to keep together. And, and another translation of the contrition part says, I am in anguish over my sins. And the New International Version says, I confess my iniquity. That's confession. I am troubled by my sin. And so let me ask you, are you awake? Do your sins trouble you? I know I blow it, but, you know, everybody blows it. You look around, you compare yourself to others, you know, I'm not that bad. They're not, they're not deeply troubled. You say, well, I don't know if my sins trouble me. Let me ask you this. When confronted with your sin, what is your first reaction? Re- remorse, regret, repent, oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Is that your first reaction? Or, when confronted with your sin, is your first reaction slip into rationalization? Huh? Justification, well, you got to understand that, well, well, that will tell you where you are on this contrition issue. Now, let me give you something from history. Some of you like history. Pull an example out of that for those of you who, this will give you a visual, and you'll go home with this, very important. 150, 180 years ago, during the Second Great Awakening in, the Amer- in America, there were revivals up and down the eastern seaboard, and the evangelists would go and preach in open areas, and people would come to Jesus, incredible stuff would happen. Listen now uh, to this. Uh, this is straight out of the history book. Show you some pictures with it. They started to see in the history books or the history of these revivals something being mentioned called a mourner's bench. Say that, mourner's bench. Now listen. A revival was at first synonymous with a camp meeting. A place was selected in a forest near a spring for wood and water were great essentials for the pioneer. Trees were felled, benches built, a bower thatched for shelter, and most significant of all. In front of the rude platform chosen to serve as a pulpit was arranged the mourner's bench. This was a rectangular space enclosed by a rail provided with seats. Into this enclosure, the penitent were invited to assemble after the sermon. A vociferous, lengthy discourse redolent of the fires of hell and the wrath of God. The convicted and broken people would sit, weep, and wait for God to pardon them. Now, I'm not advocating that we return to vociferous, lengthy sermons redolent of the fires of hell. Amen. Amen. (laughs) But I am saying that we cannot skip this step of coming before God convicted, broken, and weeping, and waiting for the pardon of God on our sin and on the sin of that which is around us. as a, as a preacher, I, I sometimes say things that upset people. I, I'm okay with that. Um, I feel like I have a freedom here that a lot of folks I know don't have, but we do. Um, and and uh, I don't mind saying things that upset people. Uh, I've always heard this, and you've heard it too. You know, my job is to comfort the afflicted, right? And afflict who? The comfortable. Someone has said... Because uh, a lot of people don't have this freedom that I, I feel like I do here. Some, somebody has said that most churches today 
pay preachers to protect them from God. By making them preach only what they want them to hear. My friends, messages that make a squirm and sit under conviction. I mean, they're not maybe something we, we want or, you know, I enjoy. Because I'm sitting under this before I even give it to you, usually. Uh, but these are essential things for us to, to walk into. If we ever want to come into this place of divine favor, which is talked about in this beatitude. This is a prerequisite to the coming of the comfort of the Lord. Godly sorrow. Now here's a verse. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Please, everybody write it down. Read it a couple times. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. This verse, I would suggest to you, ought to be in every single message you ever hear on this beatitude. These two are like intertwined. These help one another out. These two verses have to be together. Um, Here's the context of it. Paul's a preacher. Paul had to say things sometimes made people feel uncomfortable. Paul wrote letters sometimes that, you know, brought people into conviction and, and, and uh, it was hard. So he's writing a letter here about one of those letters. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. I mean, we, we, we don't like to hurt people. We, we don't, I mean, it's not like something we want to do, is what he's saying. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because in your sorrow, your sorrow led you to repentance. This thing that I'm telling us about today will take us to a great place with God. And here's here to read on. For you became sorrowful as God intended. He wants this. He's asking for this. This is something he's requiring. And so you're not harmed in any way. It's not going to hurt you if the preacher preaches something that makes your you know, you know, day go bad. Because you've got to sort it out and sit under it and get, get it in your head. 10, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. There is a memory verse. We all ought to have that one in us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, very different. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, sorry I got caught. Godly sorrow is, if he doesn't have mercy upon me, I'm dust. I deeply regret my, my actions. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, this is the fruit now of this, this is the favor coming out, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see judgment done. My friends, godly sorrow isn't fun. It's not something we like, oh, I got to go to that church, man, I'll get convicted today. I mean, we're not, it's not fun, but there's, I just want to tell you, there's always fruit. There's always fruit. The heavens will rain on your life if you, if you allow yourself to come into this place. Now, every week I do a few word studies and uh, talk to you about them. Today, I can't get far until I do a word study with you of this word mourn. Mourn. M-O-U-R-N. Now, here's what I think about this word. I believe that this word, spoken by the Lord Jesus, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, God. Holy Spirit handpicked this word. Out of nine options for the word mourning in the Greek vocabulary, there are nine choices. And I believe the Holy Spirit picks this word. Now, let me tell you about this word. This word does not mean crybaby. Blessed are the crybabies, the moaners, you know. Uh, you know, those negative cloud of griping surrounds some people. Anybody relating to this know what I'm talking about? People walk in this, you know. And I'm, I'm not... You know, saying I'm above everything. You know, there's been seasons my wife calls me Eeyore, you know. No, I just walk in the funk of that, you know, sometimes and got to get victory over it, you know. Somebody call the wambulance, you know. Uh, and, and this word is, Jesus is not pronouncing a blessing on sad people. There's nothing blessed about being depressed. That's not what this is about. This word means moved to the bowels, to the depths of our being. This, this is a word for mourn that's beyond, you know, oh, that was touching, you know, wipe a tear away. This is a profound gut-level grief of regret, remorse, sorrow. It's the contrition thing. And, uh, but I want to say something about this word as I've studied it. It's not just an internal word. Here, here's a literal rendering, an external expression of an internal reality. So this is about people seeing on the outside what is 
going on on the inside of a person who's getting themselves right before God. Now, in Jewish culture, this was understood. It's not so much in our culture. In Jewish culture, one who mourned did so in a very outward, very physical way. It was inward, but, you know, they uh, shaved their head, covered their head. They uh, mourned out loud and wailed and the laments and uh, tore their clothes and put sackcloth and ashes on them, very external in this. And I'm not saying that Jesus is calling us here to uh, some kind of show, but I think he's talking about there is some appropriate external outlet or expression that what's going on on the inside is real. Now, we built uh, this church with an altar space. Um, it would have been cheaper to not build these w- altar spots. Uh, it would probably be more functional for us. Uh, but we wanted an altar place. Why? So people could come and repent and pour out their heart and be made right with the Lord. Underneath the carpet on this bottom step, you might not know this, is a double pad. And I remember the carpet guy telling me, uh, Pastor Steve, you know, the carpet needs one pad and you're going to lessen the life of the carpet and the warranty and everything if you put two pads under there because it's going to pull it away and, you know, and, and, and I'm like, I want two pads. I want, why, why would I put two pads of carpet there? You can kneel on that thing. And I, and I said to the guy, I said, it's not like we're going to have daily traffic on this thing. And as soon as I said that, I thought, oh, God, we need that, don't we? We need daily traffic on the altar of heaven. God help us. I just had to take my words back. There are days and there are times when God calls us to come before him and repent of our sin and the sin of our nation. And I believe these are days and these are times when God is looking out at a church and saying, will you bear the reproach of your sin and the sin of your land? If so, come to my altar. I believe that these are Ezra chapter 10, 1 days. Let me read this verse to you. Pastor Ezra was praying and confessing. Okay, that's what pastors do, you know, pray, confess. Okay, but here goes, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. When you read these, do you get visual with it? Do you like to play that out in your head? I do. Weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. Whoa. That would cause a scene, wouldn't it? I mean, we've had that uh, in this church a number of times. Particularly a few years, two, three years ago, we had a real renewal here on a weekend's. We would see people laying down and crying out before the Lord. Now, that still happens in our prayer meetings and stuff, and we've moved into uh, different dimensions as a God has grown us. But um, what would that be like? You know, Pastor Ezra, whoa, on the ground, crying out, weeping before the Lord. Man, everybody gather around and think, whoops, look at him, and then leave and never come to his church again, right? Well, this says a large crowd of Israelites. So the crowd did gather. We think, man, it's just those women who, you know, those crazy intercessory ladies that do all kinds of wild stuff in prayer. Uh, Men don't do that. Well, look what it says. Men, women, and children gathered around. And you say, well, they gathered around. They're watching this spectacle, this one religious fanatic going goofy and, you know, not being stoic like we've always been with our religious expression. No, they're not just gathered around. It says, they too wept bitterly. I believe we're in Ezra chapter 10, verse 1 day. God's looking for people who will respond to him in repentance and mourning for their sin and the sin of their nation. You ever been to a church where that's going on? I have. Very infrequently. Very infrequently. I think to myself, what's hindering this, Lord? You've asked for this. Every time you respond and do cool things in the Bible, it's preceded by people who are doing that. Why won't we do that? What's hindering us from doing that? Well, this is number three. We need to identify and eliminate the hindrances to true mourning. And I've made a little list. I just have a little list. Please add to it if you're, think, if you're thinking and you got one. I'd love to know what it is. But I just came up with a few. Why don't we go there? Why don't we repent? Why, don't, why aren't we honest before God and crying out before Him? We know the cool stuff that happens in the Bible after that. Why won't we go there? Number one reason on my list, some people truly can't. They just can't. How come? They've lost all spiritual sensitivity. Their hearts have been so seared and hardened. They've lost their capacity for contrition 
They're talked about in Ephesians 4. There's people whose lives, there are people who've been so darkened in their understanding. They've been separated from the life of God due to the ignorance that's in their hearts, the Scripture says. And I believe the deception that's in their minds. They just don't think they need to go there. And verse 19 says about them in Ephesians 4, having lost all sensitivity. There's people who don't go there because they've lost, they've lost their sensitivity. The second hindrance on my little list is fear of disclosure. Why don't people repent? Why don't we come forth? Why don't, well, because we're afraid of exposure or what people will think. Now here, oh God, give us this one. What, let me say it this way. If we are more concerned about what others think than what God thinks, we will face the wrath of God. If that's out of sync in your life, if you care more about what others think than what, if your fear of what people think surpasses your fear of what God's saying, you need to sort that out, my friends. Get, get over that. The third on my list of hindrances is fear of losing control. Why don't people come forward? Why don't we cry out at the altar? Well, I, I've been a pastor long enough. I know that most people... They don't come forward to repent, not because their hearts are hard or they're rebellious or they are oblivious or whatever. They come because they know that if they uncorked it, it wouldn't stop. Huh? And so they just don't want to go there and certainly not in a public place. And I want to tell you, my friends, this is as good a spot as any to let it out. And you will watch the favor of God begin to reign on your life. And we've got to get rid of this shame thing that uh, you can't express yourself honestly before the Lord. Uh, on my list is this next one of the hindrance to true mourning. Uh, despair. What's that? That's when we switch something off in our minds that we are way past any point of hope with God. You know, that repentance might work for people who aren't near as bad off as I am, but I'm not going for it. We're hindered by a despair that our, His mercies are beyond us. I just want to say that's just not true scripturally. Others aren't open to God. Now listen to this. Because, um, Carter, I want to use the wording up here. What is this next one? Um, because of past experiences of being shamed and condemned. Why aren't people coming forward and repenting and opening themselves up before God? Because the last time they did it, they were looked down upon. Like, what's the matter with her? She's up at the altar every weekend. I apologize on behalf of the self-righteous church. And I would say, I don't know how I could create a climate here of shamelessness where you could just come forth and cry out to the Lord. But I want to say, if that's keeping you back, give it another try. Because if you don't give it another try, you won't get into the grace reign, the reign of grace on your life. Next on the list of why people don't repent is because secretly they still love sin. I'm not making this up. We don't come forward and say, God, deliver me. I'm wretched because we actually like what we're doing. And, and uh, the next one, why don't people come forward and mourn sin? That because of the trivialization of Christianity. You say, what's that? Well, Steve, I'll tell you what that is. That is when you come to Christ and you are just taught he'll give you a lollipop. It's fine. Everything's good. Just grace, 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 grace. No, no remorse for sin. Here's the truth. Come to Christ. But the closer you come to Christ, I just want to tell you what will happen. The clearer of a revelation of his righteousness will be given you. And the more you will mourn your lack of righteousness. That's the gospel truth. I have one more item on my list of what hinders true mourning. We're too dignified. We're too dignified. And this was the story that Pastor Dennis read from Luke 7, and I won't take the time. We're going to take the time to get to that. But I want to get to something in Ezekiel 9. Too dignified. You got the Pharisee. This is Luke 7. And you got the prostitute. You know the Pharisees? Well-dressed. They got the right rituals. They got the eloquent words. They got the religious thing. They got the propriety. I mean, they, these people are dignified and are disciplined in their management of their feelings and stoic. And then you have this prostitute who comes up weeping 
and dripping tears and embarrassed by the dripping of her tears. And so she's using her hair to wipe it up and she's pouring her perfume out on his feet. And the people are the self-righteous are thinking, you know, what is this? Well, what is this? I'll tell you, the dignified, stoic thing is a turnoff to the Lord. Deep emotion is acceptable in worship. That's what's, that's, that's, that's a, there's a lot of lessons there. I'm kind of going fast forward over this one. Deep emotion is acceptable in worship. Let me, let me, let me give that again because that gets in you. Deep emotion is acceptable in worship. You say, no, it's not. I didn't come from that church. Let me tell you, don't, don't worry about the church. We've messed this up for years. God is a God of emotion. He's a God of joy. He's a God of wrath. He's got all the gamut of emotions. Deep emotion is acceptable in worship. And he's wanting our worship to go beyond words to express what's deep in us. Here's my concluding point, and I have a scripture that I need to give you uh, that's with it. I appreciate uh, your attention on this one. This one is um, where the real fire is in my bones. God is looking for a people who will identify with and mourn the sin around them. He's looking for a people who identify with and mourn the sin around them. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 9. Please turn there. This passage has given me almost a physical stomach ache for a few days. Have you ever had that? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You, you just read something and it's just like, oh God. Um, this passage has been that for me. Ezekiel chapter 9. Those of you who are already there, just, just, just note that in chapter 8, it's talking about idolatry in the temple. Now you think, idolatry in the temple. What were those people thinking back then? You know, idolatry in the temple. Don't they know any better? Hey, we have idolatry in the temple today. Let's say this is a dwelling place of God and idolatry is simply having something in your heart that takes prominence over him, then we have idolatry all over this room. Hopefully not as much as, you know, elsewhere, but it's true, huh? Idolatry in the house. And so if that's true of us, what's true in chapter 8, then chapter 9 is very sobering for us uh, because this is the judgment that comes upon the idolaters. And particularly in verse 3, I want to start. Um, now the glory of the God of Israel. That's what we want. we want. We want his presence, his manifest glory. Whoa. But it went up from above the cherubim. It began to lift off the place where it was dwelling in the temple. Where it had been. And it moved to the threshold of the temple. I wish I had more time. Basically the glory is going out the door. That's what's going on here. And then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who was, had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem. Here's the part right here. And put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. So there's going to be people with a mark on them. There's going to be people without a mark on them. And the people with a mark on them are those who have grieved and lamented all the detestable things that are done in the city, the dwelling of the Lord. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill. Without showing pity or compassion, slaughter old men, young men, maidens, women, and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. I think to myself, God, that's a horrible scripture. That's terrible. You're going to wipe out everything that doesn't have this mark. But the next four, four words rock me. Begin at my sanctuary. Christians thinking the judgment's just going to go out and fall on San Francisco. Let me tell you where the judgment starts. It begins in the house of the Lord, and it says it right here. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders. Oh my goodness. Do I need to tell you the end time significance of this passage? That in the end times, in the body, in the flock, there will be two camps. Those with a mark and those without a mark. And the, the judgment will come upon those without the mark. The world has its mark, the mark of the beast, I know that. But God has a mark. There will be a mark. 
and, and on the people marked by God, there will be no judgment. Well, what is the separation uh, between these two? There's one group that's going to be supernaturally sheltered from the judgments. One, one group that won't. What is it that would make one have a mark on their head from the Lord? It's on those who grieve and lament the iniquity in the camp. The people who are willing to bear the reproach of their sin and the sin of their, their land will be spared. My friends, God is calling us to identify with sin and repent of it, and he'll bring restoration in the land. I have a story I want to close with. This is from a book called Releasing the Prophetic Destiny of a Nation. It's a very important book. All 50 states are listed in here. Chuck Pierce Dutch Sheets went on a tour of 50 states, 50-state tour. They felt the Lord called them to go to 50 states. We met them here. They were in Pier, and very important statements and declarations of the Lord's heart for each state are given in here with some history of the state. It's very, it's very important stuff in here. But I just want to read the very beginning. What was it that caused these guys to go to all 50 states? I mean, why leave where they were? They were fine. They had good stuff, good churches going on. Why did they go to every 50 state, all 50 states, and speak the word of the Lord? Well, it tells us in the beginning because one time Dutch Sheets, he's in his church service in Colorado Springs. It's a Sunday night. He gets done preaching his message. And I'm going to read now. It's first person. He says, I began to weep so hard that I could not regain my composure. People are probably thinking, what's wrong with pastor tonight? Um, Someone else had to close the service. Everyone went home. I was left alone. For three and a half hours, I wept over America. So hard at times that I was afraid I was injuring myself. I felt as though my heart was literally breaking. I did not know one could cry from so deep a place. Have you ever had that burden come upon you? The grief of the... the, We've had it in this room right here when we've had Native American friends come at different times. And just the mourning and the innocent bloodshed cry on the land just sits upon us. Oh, God. But this came upon him for America. And he quotes a book. He says, author and lecturer Leo, and I can't pronounce his last name, once talked about a contest he was asked to judge. Now listen to this. The purpose of the contest was to find the most caring child. The winner was a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went to the old gentleman's yard, climbed into his lap, and just sat there. When his mother asked him what he said to the neighbor, the little boy said, Nothing. I just helped him cry. And then Dutch writes, For three and a half hours, I helped God cry. I know God rejoices at the salvation of a sinner and there's a party in heaven and there's a time to laugh and there's a time to weep. But my friends, we've got 44 days left in this state and God has put his hand upon us and set us up to be the first nation in the state to bring down the slaughter of innocence. He weeps. The, the souls of the lost children, it, it talks about the martyrs crying out to the Lord day and night. Now, I know the Lord rejoices and I know the Lord weeps, but how would it be for us to be laughing and loud when the Lord is in a moment of grief and calling us to a certain thing. How could we ever stand before him and ask him for anything else when we partied our way through a time when he, wanted, when he gave us a window of opportunity to repent of a serious iniquity that will bring refreshment and, and blessing on the land? Would you stand with me? I need you to pray. Um, this week, I'm joining with a few other pastors and some groups that are uh, going to, we're hosting meetings in 12 cities or something like this around the state, three per day, starting tomorrow, ending in Rapid City on Friday or however the week is fashion, and we're meeting with pastors. Hundreds have been invited. Tricklings have shown up, except for in a couple key places. Um, I just want to say, pray that the church does not party its way through a key moment. Let me give you a, a story on this. Uh, a week and a half ago, I received a phone call that uh, Christianity Today magazine wanted to interview me about the abortion ban. And that was a very odd call for me. I'm not famous. I'm like, wow, what was that call about? So anyway, I called back, and I, I talked to this interviewer for, or this reporter for, th- for 30 minutes. And at the end of it, I just said, hey, i got to ask you, you know, 
I'm like a little fish and not very famous. I mean, how come you called me? And he said, well, Pastor Steve, I just have to tell you that you're our second call. And I said, oh, uh, what was your first call? And he, he said, well, we called uh, the, you know, one of the biggest churches in the state. We thought we'd to get their view. And I said, well, couldn't you get through to the, the lead dog? You know, I just, uh, and he said, uh, well, we did. But um, he said um, he doesn't have an opinion on this. And it's not an issue in his church right now. If he wants somebody to talk to him about it, he should call Pastor Steve Hickey. And, you know, wow, call Christianity Day. Isn't that cool? But here's the deal. Are we going to bear the reproach of this thing, church, or what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Let's pray. It would, it would probably be the case, Lord, that some are frustrated that abortion has come up three or four times. But as I stand before you, I just don't see another thing to talk about that would trump the moment that we're in. In terms of you stirring the church to respond. And so I pray that there would be upon the remnant of the church in South Dakota a great sense of sobriety. That right now, indeed, our sovereign moment where we can either walk into the promise that's spoken over the state prophetically or if we don't respond, walk into the judgments. And so I pray, Father, that we would be people who are broken. We cry out, not just for our own sin, but for the sin of our nation. I ask for that grace to be upon us. And I thank you. I want to sing this song and I'll close.